leading us in worship today. Oh, man, uh, what a great Sunday you guys are walking into. Uh, very excited. Um, if, you, if you don't know, if you're a guest, um, this is going to be our last Sunday um, in this building. Um, however, 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 I'll have more to say about that at the end, but um, we don't know for sure that we're going to be in the other building uh, next week. And so uh, you're going to get some emails at the end of this week, and we'll talk more about how we're going to proceed. Um, but we'll either do virtual or we'll be in the new building next Sunday. But categorically, you have attended the last Sunday service at Genesis Metro Church 9750, John W. Elliott. Um, the end of an era. The end of an era. And the beginning of a new one. Um, so we are closing up with also another historical marker, um, and, and I'm sorry uh, for all of our guests, I'm sorry, and this is just a little bit of a, a personal moment today. Um, this is also the longest series we have ever preached at Genesis Metro Church. 13 weeks, 13 weeks uh, in Joseph, and uh, the previous high was 2015, the book of Galatians, and so uh, another milestone. I don't know if y'all are ready to be done with Joseph, but uh, you know, I am, I am. Uh, takes a lot of uh, focus for me to stay in a topic this long. So uh, I'm very excited uh, to crescendo this. And this is one of the most epic uh, cornerstone Bible verses. Uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's going to be a great, great day. And I think that um, a life-changing day. Um, it already has been in the first service. I think it's going to be in the second service. And, and you might ask yourself, like, why is, it, why is this important to me? Um, and I would tell you that uh, the first half of the sermon, we're going to try to deconstruct Joseph's brothers still getting it wrong. And so much more time, um, I think, in life we probably spend getting it wrong. Um, so how do we get past our past? Um, because a lot of people just can't get past their past. And today is going to give us everything that we need in that one simple verse. And I hope that I can break that down, give it to you. And then, hopefully, some of you will receive the freedom that God offers all of you. So before we, before we get down the road, um, you know, there was kind of, a, there's kind of a big day yesterday. I don't know if anybody, you know, was watching the old gridiron matches, but uh, there, was a, there was a little thing in Texas, Cotton Bowl, uh, Red River rivalry. Anybody, like, anybody happen to catch that one? If you didn't see the, the scoring play where... Uh, the Sooners took the lead at the end of the game. I just thought we'd watch it together, you know? Tackled inbounds. Gabriel. Fortes touchdown! Look, Anderson! Sooner! Now, I know you guys think that's all about football, but I think God just gave us an Easter egg yesterday because if, if you don't know, like our address is 3330 El Dorado. It's like God just smiled down. He's like, Tim, I'm just going to give you one for tomorrow. You just, just take it. Just take it. Uh, so very excited. Okay, you take that off the screen now. Has nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. Just some good old fun. Um, so for, to catch everyone up, last week we talked about Jacob, Joseph's father, okay? There's three, patriarch, three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then 
the promised son who birthed essentially um, the future of Israel because of his faithfulness was Joseph. And um, we've been talking about him for the last 13 weeks. And last week we got to where Jacob was reunited. So after all of this time had passed, uh, some 20-odd years, um, he was reunited at the age of 130 uh, with his son that he had believed to be dead. And where we're going to pick up the story this week is that Jacob has passed away. And uh, part of his uh, parting words was that he gave a blessing and somewhat of a curse uh, to some of his kids based upon their level of obedience. And, um, and we're going to see how the brothers interacted with that. And so uh, you just need to know that Jacob has passed away uh, Joseph mourned him like no funeral I've ever seen. It was a 40-day mourning process. And then he carried his father's bones back to the grave that they had purchased for their family in this place called Shechem. And there's a whole nerd level there. But, um, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried in the same place. And then um, when Joseph dies in the same chapter, we're not going to get there, but this is just for all my Bible nerds in the house that love this kind of stuff. Uh, Joseph tells the people, his brothers, he said, swear to me that when I die, um, years from now, this is going to become a place of slavery and suffering. I want you to take my bones back to the promised land. And uh, when you think about that, if you don't know your Bible history, this is quite an ask, quite an ask, because it's going to be 430 years of them being in Egypt, and then they got to carry them across the Red Sea, and then they make some mistakes, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then crossing the Jordan on dry ground. They took Joseph's bones all the way back to where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried. Now, you say to yourself, I know what you're asking. What is the significance of that, Tim? Like, please give me some of this Bible nerddom. And I will, okay? Egypt was never where they were supposed to be. It was supposed to be the place where they were passing through. But the promised land is what God promised. Ergo, that was the land of the living God. So Joseph said, I am not going to stay in the place that I was never meant to be, but I'm going to be buried forever in the land of the living, knowing that he's the God of the living and the dead. And so God is, is going to carry him to the place that he promised his, his patronage. And so I'm just encouraging you today that whatever God promises, he can bring it to pass. Even if you have to be buried and wait 430 years, even if we have to wait for a thousand years, there's going to be a time where God calls and we answer the living God, and that is going to be for eternity in a place called heaven as a result of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. All right, that is the appetizer now for the entree. Ready? It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to themselves, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father, now listen to that, this is, this is their father, but now, like, you know, they're saying your father. Isn't it amazing how, like, when your kid acts up, it's like your kid, it's not our kid. Does anybody 
Anybody do that? Like, your son, you know, Carrie says that to me a lot. Um, so anyway, he says, they said to him, your father gave this command. Now, they're just making this story up, okay? They're, they're just trying to avoid what they believe to be is a certain outcome of revenge, okay? So they said, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, we're going to get into this in just a moment, but have you ever noticed that through 13 weeks of us talking about Joseph that that Joseph didn't weep when he was at Potiphar's house, and he didn't weep when he was put into prison. But all of his weeping was through the reconciliation process. And now his brothers seemingly still don't get it. And we're gonna, that's going to be the first half of the message. And Joseph is weeping because he can't believe that they don't trust his heart after all the grace that he has given them. It says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and he said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And that's going to be the first half of the sermon. Number one point, too good to believe. Too good to believe. Too good to believe. My father always told me, if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. Um, you know, a lot of times in life, that saying, I would say, is generally true. Would you guys agree from your experience? Like if someone was trying to give you or sell you a $50,000 car and they said it's only going to cost $25,000, right? You'd be like, what's... What's wrong with it, right? And rightfully, rightfully, you should, you should think like that. Joseph's brothers seemingly have missed the message. They, they think that Joseph's grace and mercy and kindness was a charade. Now, if Joseph had only been there for a hot minute, if, he had, if their reunion had only been like a, a couple of months, a year... Jacob has been in Egypt, as was promised in the dream that God gave to Joseph, for 17 years. 17 years. So that means that they believe for 17 years, Joseph was like, hey guys, how's it going over here? You know, we're going to have some people over, we're going to watch the game, have a couple of beers, you know, make some barbecue, you know, and it was all a show. Like, that's what they believed inside of their mind, that Joseph was just waiting for the old man to kick the bucket, and then he was going to pour out his wrath on his brothers. Now, imagine the level of twistedness that is inside our minds that we could take the good that someone is trying to do for us and twist it and turn it and disbelieve it, even though it's on display for us for 17 years. Can I just ask you a question? What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Do you guys, do you guys ever, do you ever have that thought? 
If you don't have that thought, then you, my friend, are a narcissist, okay? You, a healthy amount of self-reflection, good, good for the soul, okay? It's like, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Because so many times when we look at the Bible, I was listening to an atheist the other day, and he was commenting that he had read through the whole Bible. And um, by the way, if you don't ever study the other side of the debate, I think, I think that's good for us to do. You know, what is it that the other side is thinking? How do we defend our positions? Do we stand on a truth that is able to withstand any, criti any critique or debate? And I, I would tell you, uh, bring it on. Any, any atheist in the room, like, I would love to have a conversation with you. It wouldn't be confrontational. I just want to pose to you questions, you know. And then if you have answers, great. And you pose to me questions. I should have answers. If I don't, then I shouldn't do this job. Um, but this atheist was talking about the book of Job. Talk about too good to be true. <laughs> he said he read through the book of Job, and it obviously, and he had, a, I will say, a lot of atheists have a little bit of arrogance. Has anybody ever noticed that? Like they feel like they know, you know? And if you're an atheist in the room, I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, if you're not, if you're a humble atheist, I haven't met you, okay? But, but he was like, I read through it all, you know, and, and it clearly was like a novel and someone came later in this ancient writing and wrote an alternative ending so that this book was, you know, half of it was, was their view in a novel, and then someone else wrote the alternative ending. And he said, because, number one, it, it proves how sadistic God is because he has this wager for Job's, you know, faithfulness. Like, what kind of God? What kind of God would say, like, hey, Satan, let's wager whether or not Job will be faithful. And the God of the Bible would be like, yeah, let's do it. And then he he put him through all of this loss and suffering, and yet Job endured. And he said the part that he didn't like was at the end, Job had all of these questions, and then God began to answer him and said, you know, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I spoke creation into existence? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky, when I created mountains and earth and air and all of the space and the continuum with which life can exist? And only, only in a place like earth can life exist. And then I spun that up and then I spoke man into existence. Where were you, Job, when I did all of that? And Job was satisfied with the answer of God, not answering his questions, and then God blessed Job double whatever he lost in the beginning. Now, the guy surmised it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. And generally, I would say to you that that is the case in real life. But then, when I read the gospel, and I learn that God loved us so much that he moved from heaven to earth and he became a man and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and he suffered there for me and that he died and by his own power on the third day rose from the grave, that seems too good to be true. And when you uh, examine the facts, and when you look at the historical accounts, and when you look at the gospel, the eyewitnesses, you'll come to a conclusion that it is impossible for Jesus 
to not have been Jesus. If you believe anything in history, you have to believe that Jesus came to the earth and that he died and that he rose again. And I want you to think about that. How many people do you know that have died and three days later, by their own power, just got up out of the grave? Anybody? Anybody? Like, no! All right? So Jesus is the the quintessential, this is the greatest moment in human history that Jesus died and rose again, and he did so to suffer and die for humanity that was lost inside their sin. That, to me, sounds too good to be true. But if you've received the grace of God into your life, you would say, amen, it is true, and Jesus gets all the glory, and the church said, amen, right? If you've experienced grace, then you know it's real. You know that God is real. If you've said yes to Jesus, and he's real in your life, it has changed everything. So when Joseph is looking at his brothers, a question I want to ask you that he's thinking in his mind as he wept, he said, are we still not past this? Are we still not past this? Like, okay, I'm going to meddle a little bit, okay, for all my couples in the room, okay? How many people are married in this room? Just by show of hands. All right. Oh, almost everyone. Okay, how many people have been dating for over a year? Anyone in here? Okay, okay, okay. Is there anybody in the back there? I didn't see one hand I was expecting. Eric Shelton. It's about time to put a ring on it, don't you think? I make marriages happen, folks. Wouldn't it be great if he stood up right now and he bent down and he was like... Anyway, let me ask you a question. When it comes to the things that you fight about at your house, tell me the truth. Do you fight about the same stuff over and over again? Like, does anybody else in here do that? Like, let's say someone's late, okay? This is how I, I picture it going. Not that one of us in our family is always late. No, I'm not just this making that hypothetical up. But let's just say, like, uh, it's time to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to go out to the car now. Yeah. And then there's some discussion level of like, you know, if we just got ready earlier, we could be on time. I know it doesn't bother you to not be on time, but it bothers me to not be on time. And then we fight about it, and there's a discussion, and there's like, oh, well, there's a thing that had to be done, and this and that, and this and that. You don't know. Anyway, I don't know how it goes in your life, but, and then we like hit the uh, reset button, and then we just wait, and then we have the same fight again, um, maybe a week later, maybe a couple days, whatever it is. Like, um, does, anybody else, does anybody else do this? Like, um, if you have children, anybody has children in here, have you ever, have you ever thought to yourself that you were, you were past something? Has anybody, has anybody had that fleeting, foolish, foolhardy thought? Like you had had a conversation and a breakthrough actually happened inside their brain. Has you, have you ever had that notion just for it to be shattered hours later? Maybe minutes, sometimes seconds. Like, you know, it's like, aren't we past this yet? Aren't we past this yet? And so I think a lot of times we realize through our experience that we're clearly not past it yet. And Joseph is looking at his brothers and he's saying, how in the world have I given you grace that you didn't deserve 
and I've blessed you that you are the richest people in all of Egypt, and I forgave you. How in the world are we not past this? Reflect that to yourself for just a moment. Do you think that there's any people sitting in the room that when, if Joseph is the archetype of God and we are in the position of the brothers, is there anything that God would look at you and say, are we not past that yet? Are we not past the approval game yet? How old are you? And you need the approval of the world? Are we not past the fear thing yet? Where you look at the world as if the world is trying to take from you every day and you stand on shaky ground, fearful of what tomorrow holds? Are we not over the control thing yet? Are we not over that? Do you, do you believe that you have control? How many times and how many things are going to happen before you realize Bro, you don't have control. Are you over the success game yet? The one-upping that you define your life by your status? Are you over that? Are we past that yet? When are you going to realize that it doesn't matter how high you climb, that if you don't have God when you get there, it's empty. It's empty. You could have trust for all the people in here that struggle financially. If you had all the money in the world, it wouldn't solve the problem of you. You still got to deal with you no matter how much you have. Now watch this. Joseph, tell me what cues did Joseph give them to go through the process and arrive at their conclusion. He had given them no evidence, okay? No evidence that he was going to betray them. No evidence that he was going to judge them. No evidence that he was going to kill them or put them in prison. He'd given them no evidence. But look at what they did. And then I hope that you'll like, pick up that mirror and, and maybe look and see, do you do this? They concocted in their mind, based upon their past mistakes, a conclusion that Joseph must come to, and then they reacted to a conclusion that they concocted without any evidence of it being so. When you walk in here, when you walk in your house, when you walk in your office, just let me ask you this question. Before you come to your conclusion, are any of you running down the road as to what everyone else in the room is thinking? Are you running down the road of like, oh, well, they didn't do this. We didn't talk about it. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't do any investigation. But I have come to the conclusion that they must hate me because they didn't do X, Y, Z one more time. Oh, and your whole life is spent thinking about what other people could be thinking without ever knowing if they're actually thinking it because you never ask. Are you thinking that? Who am I talking to in here today? Would you, you want to raise your hand? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Think of what kind of prison would your mind be 
If you constantly were trying to analyze everyone else's thoughts about you without knowing, wouldn't it be just, wouldn't it be easier to say, I want to be whole inside of God's purpose for my life to where I don't need any of those things? That I'm so secure in my relationship with Christ that I can get past my past. The brothers, as long as they were holding it up, and some of you that have made terrible mistakes, okay, and we all have, Lord knows, you bring, you resurrect your own past and your pain, and you almost feel like if I were to let go of that, it would somehow be denigrating or it would somehow be losing my identity. And so you beat yourself up with mistakes that you made in your past because you feel like it's some kind of penance for your mistake. Can I just help you out today and say, if Jesus forgave you, can't you forgive yourself? And the church said, amen. Let's say it one more time louder. And the church said, amen. Like, if you are forgiven, right? Because isn't what they asked Joseph? They said, will you forgive us? And what did he say? Am I in the place of God? See, my place as the pastor of Genesis Metro Church, the place of the authority of Genesis Metro, the staff, the elders, the spiritual authority that is over you. Now, first of all, some of you that just said, you're not over me, like, bro, you're in rebellion, okay? Rebellion. If you don't have spiritual authority in your life, guess what you are? You're a little rebellion, a little rebel. You're going to get your heart broken in a thousand pieces, a little rebel. We all are under submission. Whenever I accept Christ, I am submitting to Him. But when it comes to forgiveness of sin, I, Tim Bourne, do not have the power to forgive your sin. No man has the power to forgive sin. Now, if you wrong me, I can forgive you on a horizontal level. I can say, I want our relationship to be restored. You seek forgiveness. I grant that, but I'm not forgiving sin. Every sin that we ever commit is placed into a ledger, and that ledger is reckoned, the Bible says, as debt, so that every time you sin, it's like a debt clock. I don't know if y'all have seen our debt clock. Has anybody seen that? Do you guys know that we actually paid down our debt in America? No. That's <laughs> never happened. Anyway, I'm not going to get off on that. So if our sin is debt, okay, and it's building up and we have to pay for that sin, like at some point God calls us into account and when we die there's there's an accounting of our sin, and if, and if we have any debt in our ledger, it leads to eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's, that's a real thing. It's a real place. But God said that He would send His Son, and one of the things that Jesus said while He was hanging on a cross was to telestai, which means paid in full. So Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice so that all of our sin past, present, future, could be paid for, okay? When we accept Christ, that ledger, that sin debt is canceled. And then we draw upon 
the account of grace for the rest of our lives. So today, your past doesn't have to be your prison. Your DNA doesn't have to be your destiny. God has given us grace that is greater than all of our sin. Therefore, the only question is, are you willing to believe what God has demonstrated to you over and over and over again? Or are you going to keep digging up those old dry bones and lifting them up and saying, no, this is who I am. This is who I am because I made this mistake because I did this. This is what someone told me that I am. Therefore, I have to be that the rest of my life. In the name of Jesus, receive the freedom that grace offers you today. And the church said, amen. Let's get excited. Woo! I'm, uh, I'm just feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Number three, jaded is a choice. Jaded is a choice. Jaded is a choice. Joseph, would you agree, had every reason to be jaded? Let's say today someone drug you out of this room, your brothers, your sisters, you know, some of you can really imagine this, and uh, sold you to a caravan of gypsies, right? And then, then this whole, like, 30 years of terrible things happened to you, okay? Just, just, try, to, just try to imagine it, okay? Um, I think you would have a strong temptation to be jaded, right? I think you'd probably, like, look a little distrusting, um, if you ever had a reunion, you'd be like sleep with one eye open, you know, like what's going to happen next. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of people, they walk into church like that, uh, believe it or not. I think that people walk in here uh, jaded from past church experiences. Um, have you ever seen someone that they kind of like walk in and they're like uh, kind of like snipers, right? Uh, they, w- they wait to like the second song. And then, like, they kind of slip in and, like, try to find a seat, you know, in the back, non-conspicuous. And then they wait for the end, and then it's like uh, a mad dash to the, to the exit. Now, I readily admit that if you are a guest at our church and you're walking into a room full of strangers, right, this is my imagination of your experience, okay? If you come from a Baptist background, which is what I come from, you walk in and you're like, you see with these people up here like getting after it, and you're like, you're gonna walk in, and you're gonna walk in, and you're in your, in your mind, like if you're a Catholic or, you know, something like that, you're like, well, these people are just like a couple levels away from swinging from the chandelier type people, okay? And it's, I know, I know, I get it. And you're like, is this a cult? Is it normal? What is it? Okay? And then if you come from the other extreme, let's say that you were raised Pentecostal or Assembly of God or something like that, you walk in here and you're like, man, they're so close. They're almost there in worship, you know? Just just a little further. Just press in a little bit more. Like the spirit fall down like rain. They're like, they didn't even get wet, you know? It's like, there's a lot of things that are, that are going on in a worship service. And imagine like you're pastoring a non-denominational church and people are walking in and they have all of these different expectations and all these different mindsets and all these different theologies and beliefs. It's like, okay, okay, if you're not careful, people are going to walk in and because of bad experiences in their past, they walk in and they're like, don't touch me, don't look at me, I'm not going to write my information down. And it's almost like a badge of honor, like I got in and I got out and no one, I talked to no one. And that's, that's a win, you know, come on, listen to me, listen to me. Jaded is not the goal, right? Jaded isn't the goal. If Jesus is the king of your heart, then church is supposed to be about community. Church is supposed to be 
family. And if you walk in and you don't want to talk to anyone, you don't want to see anyone, you don't want to smile at anyone, can I submit to you that there's something in you that is broken? And you've allowed something somewhere in your past to grab hold of your heart and tell you it's okay to be standoffish with everyone. I'm not saying trust every stranger. I'm not even saying trust me. But if you're here for a little while, you'll find out that what you experience when you walk through the doors, that's real. That's real. And I want you to be set free. I want you to be set free. I want you to experience church the way that it was intended to be. A bunch of imperfect people, saved by grace, trying to do their best to build the kingdom of God one soul at a time. Are we past this yet? Are you past this? Are you past the dipping your toes in? He said, you know, okay, I'll go for a couple of months, then we'll get involved. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> it's been a couple of years, folks. Like, at some point, God is calling you. And you don't get to choose, okay? Some people are like, well, I serve through uh, the Kiwanis, I serve through this, I serve through the Rotary Club, whatever. No, no, no. Jesus said, my church. My church. That's my vehicle. So we don't get to choose the way we do it. We have to submit, and we obey, and we serve him through his local church. So I encourage you, maybe it's time to get past dipping your toes in the water, and it's time to dive in and be committed, committed to Jesus. Last verse, and I wrap it up. It says, as for you, this is what his retort was to his brothers. He said, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be saved as they are today. My last point, or major point, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. How do you parse out all the experiences of your life and then stay on track to follow after Jesus? Because there's an infinite amount of ways for you to get off track. You can get mad at someone. You can be betrayed by someone. Someone can, you know, lie to you. So whatever. It's infinite. You could get caught up in some sin. You could get caught up in an addiction. You could get caught up in sexual immorality. There's, there's so many ways to get off track. And there's only one way to get on track, and that's Jesus. So you can see the odds are against us all that we typically will move towards getting off track. Joseph is saying here that the people that were in his life, that were closest to him, they meant to hurt him. They meant to do evil. He said, but somehow, and this is too good to be true, right? Somehow, God meant it for good. To what aim? To save many lives. So as you begin to consider all the things that have ever happened to you, and we all have some cornerstones, maybe some painful experiences, and we, we tend to pull back and we say, well, that that pain, that's going to prevent me, and then I become distrusting, and I only, like, I only have, my, I have my three. I'm at two, and my wife is my, like, my two, okay? So, like, I don't need anybody else as long as I have my wife or my husband. 
I mean, that's codependency. It's not healthy. Anyway, so, like, if your circle is closed, I just think, what if God, what if God thought like you? What if He was like, we got our three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, like, like, we don't need it anymore. Like, right? Like, God had open arms, right? God had open heart. And He had every reason to distrust you. He had every reason to distrust me. And yet, He loved me anyway. Joseph had every reason to be jaded. Now, how do you move from jaded to joy? It has to be Jesus, right? Only Jesus can change you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can get you outside of the wrong thinking that is inside your brain that dominates every part of your relationships that it infects every way. Like you can't even be positive one day. One day in your life, you know who you are. Every day you are negative. You are negative. You're going to, oh, look at the weather today. It's too hot. Oh, look at the weather today. It's too cold. Like you're talking about our building. I know some of you walk in here every week. You're like, oh, it's so cold in that church. Look, this is the ghetto, okay? This is the ghetto. This is a plumbing supply warehouse. We put walls around a plumbing supply warehouse and we made it a home for 12 years, okay? It's cold because we can't control it. And then if we don't turn it down to 65 every week because we don't have climate control, it gets hot. And then I have to preach to people who are like this. You'll stay awake when you're cold, but when you get hot, sleep right out of the gate. So next week, it'll be so amazing. We have climate control. Oh, my gosh, we're so excited. Praise Jesus for climate control. Some of you will allow the slightest little thing to prevent you from persevering. And what Joseph is telling us is that pain is a privilege. That pressure is a privilege. And that there's a way to use these things to motivate so that we can reach more souls. Recently, we went back in the time machine and we drove back to where I grew up. And we're going to launch this series in January. And it's going to tell the story of Tim Bourne and kind of where I came from. And what's going to become obvious through the interviews that we do and if you don't know my background, I grew up in an atheist household. There was not a lot of love there. There was a lot of brokenness. And in all of these interviews, these are 30 years ago people in my life, 20 years ago, the expectation of all of them was the same. And they said, if I would have gone through what you went through, if I would have grew up the way that you grew up, I would have quit. But you didn't. You kept on. And as I was interviewing one of the couples, the mom started breaking down. And she was like openly weeping. And these are people I haven't talked to in, I don't know, 20 years. And her son was one of the ones that surrendered to the ministry. Shortly after I did, I influenced about four guys just surrendered to preach, and I was saved at 13, answered the call, started preaching when I was 16, so done that for 33 years now. Well, he quit, and here's a mom, 30 years after, and is still asking the question like it happened yesterday, and she said, Tim, through, through tears streaming down her face, she said, I just don't understand. 
my son grew up in a loving home. We went to church every Sunday. Gave him all of the things that he needed to succeed. And yet, he quit. And then you had a hard time kind of taking that in that moment. It's kind of like, and then you. <laughs> she didn't mean it that way, but you know. There's a lot of emotion in the room. She's like, you come from what you come from. And yet you endure. She goes, I don't understand that. I said, I can help you with that. I said, if you've grown up in church all your life, and all you've ever known is the good, the grace of God doesn't affect you the way that it affects someone who grew up like me. It doesn't mean that you're not saved by grace, just like, and it's not less of an experience, but it's different. If you grew up in brokenness with no love and no hope and didn't know that there even was a God, and then you find out through a chance encounter of a basketball coach coming by your house and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, that I could be forgiven, and that I could be set free, and that there was a family that superseded my family, and that God was my, could be my father, and that he would call me son. When you get a hold of that grace, you hold on for dear life, and you say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but by his grace, now I've been set free. Man, I'm just trying to say to you this morning, if God has given you his grace, then to me, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I wouldn't take back anything that was to the bad or negative in my church experience and in my family experience because it made me. God wasn't doing those things to hurt me. He was doing those things to help me. God wasn't doing those things to leave me. He was doing those things to lead me. Therefore, God built me to endure so that whenever there was hardship, whenever there was suffering, I had to say to myself, Joseph said, they meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to do what? Save many souls. Without Joseph's suffering, no one gets saved. If I didn't go through the suffering, then none of the souls would be saved. If you understand grace, then you say to yourself, the suffering is worth the next soul. I would rather suffer and lose everything so that one more soul could be saved. And that is the DNA of Genesis Metro Church. At any cost to save as many as possible, your soul is worth it to the kingdom of God. And the church said, amen. Now, I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to worship our faces off in the last service at Genesis Metro Church. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? This is what I'm going to ask. This is what I'm going to ask, and I'm going to put you in a dilemma, okay? So this is going to be a mind-bender, okay? So just don't answer, okay? Are you ready to receive 
what God is offering here today. God is offering that if you receive His grace, we are going to bury that thing that always has come up, and we are going to bury it once and for all. No longer the broken person, no longer the person that cheated, no longer the liar, no longer the divorcee, no longer the drug addict, no longer the sexually immoral. No, no, we, no we're going to bury that, and God says, we're not going to bring it up again. We're not going to talk about it again, because that's not who you are. This is who you are. That's what we're going to do today. Are you ready to receive the freedom that is offered at the cross? Okay, okay, okay. If you are, if you have, then do you live like the next soul is worth it? When did you stop living like the next soul was worth it? I just want to ask you the question. If you're ready to receive all of that that God has, are you ready to give everything that God requires? He doesn't want just your praise. He wants your heart. He wants to be number one in your life. Are you ready to crown him? If you're going to receive grace, shouldn't you crown him as the king of your heart? Shouldn't you crown him this morning? And if you crowned him, is there anything in your life that would have to change? Immediately, is there anything in your life you're going to have to let go of? Is there anything you're going to have to reschedule? Is there any kind of budget keeping that you're going to have to reallocate finances and if immediately you say, I would love to do that, but no, okay, listen, you're not ready. But if you are ready to receive it today, I promise you, come with open hearts and open hands and say, yes, I want it all. I want all of Jesus, and I'm willing to let go of everything in this world because the next soul is worth it. Would you guys let me pray, and then we're going to sing. You guys ready? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, help us to receive your grace. God, help us to receive forgiveness of sin. God, help us to receive the fact that we do not have to repeat our mistakes. We don't have to repeat what our father did, what our mother did. We don't have to repeat the broken cycle. By your grace, God, we can be set free. We can set a foundation that is sure that even when the storms of life rage against us, we, like Job, can plant our feet and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't have all the answers, and it looks pretty bad, but I'm going to hold on to the fact that God is good that God is real. And someone didn't come along and write an alternative ending. God wrote it himself. And it's too good to be true. It's too good to believe, but yet it is. And if it is, am I living like that? Am I living like Jesus saved my soul? I hope that I might fan into flame some of your passions that have grown cold. You've separated yourself from the love of God in your actions and in your priorities. And that's no good for anyone. Today, as we mark the last Sunday at 9750, John W. Elliott, wouldn't that be a great day to say, I choose Jesus above everything else in my life. I choose Jesus for my family. I choose Jesus for my children. Today, as we worship together this last time in this building, I hope today would be a day of celebration. The altar is going to be open today, and we are going to turn it up to 11. Are you ready, church? Would you stand and worship with us?